The reason for our sermon this morning and the reason for this topic is to demonstrate to all of us today that in an age of unrest, uncertainty, and turmoil, the child of God has ample reason for victorious optimism. The child of God is to be a happy person. In fact, the melancholy characteristic of the age is to have no bearing on the Christians entering into his primeval job, which is an earnest of everlasting joy. The word joy, as expressed in the New Testament, is done so by a wealth of synonymous terms. The most common word is translated joy, which is defined rejoice and be glad. The New Testament of the use of joy shows it also to be a consistent mark of the individual in the Christian. It's not simply an emotion like clapping hands, artificial grins, amens, and hallelujahs. But it is a quality that naturally expresses itself. It is grounded in God and derived from His Word. You know, if the foundation of a person's faith is based upon emotion, then when a person is not being filled up emotionally, then their faith is going to go by the wayside. But if their faith is based upon the Word of God and the foundation of their faith is based upon the Word of God, then regardless, and I want you to get this now, Regardless of the outer peripheral issues in your life, it will not change the way you are inside. Oh, the melancholy age in which we live in. It will never derail the Christian. It will never derail the child of God, and it will never change what a child of God has that is deep within inside him. Joy is not a byproduct either, as demonstrated by the fact that it is constantly enjoined to be cultivated. In fact, joy characterizes the Christian's life on earth. I'd like to invite your attention to the book of 1 Peter now, the first chapter, and I want to notice with you a few passages of Scripture that's found there. 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning there in verse 5. This characterizes the Christian's life. Beginning in verse 5, the Bible says, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed." In the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. You know, Peter was talking about manifold temptations and talking about manifold things. He was talking about things that was for a specific people that was persecutions because of their faith. And even at that, regarding all of those things that might come your way, he says the words that you greatly rejoice, even though that for a time or for a short time or for a season, you're going to go through such manifold temptations. Listen, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to go through something and greatly rejoice. You know, he doesn't say, just look on the bright side, get through it. He said, greatly rejoice. Why? Because of your faith. Because of what you have taken possession of, which is like a down payment of glory later on. And that is joy, because the joy to the child of God is everlasting joy. Next verse, verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, 
who having not seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. This idea of being full of glory, as defined, it means it is a joy that imparts to one's sense of dignity. It is not just some outward feeling, and it's not just some outward show. Have you ever seen someone that was acting happy when they really weren't? It's phony and it's fake and you can look to them. You can see people with artificial grins and expressions on their face. There might even be people also that are even saying words that make it sound as though they're happy. But it's false. That's not what full of glory is. It's not an outward show. It's an inward feeling and knowing. You know, this word unspeakable... Unspeakable joy and full of glory means it is something that is so great. I love this. This word means this. It is so great that words cannot describe it. You ever think you got bad things happening in your life and you just got bad everywhere? If you're a child of God, and we're going to get to what it means to be a child of God, and what kind of a life is required, because I'll tell you this. I've talked to a lot of people in my lifetime. I've talked to a lot of Christians that were kind of sitting on the fence, as it were, hanging on by a thread like we spoke of on Wednesday night. Not living the life that they're supposed to live, not following after what the Bible teaches, and then they wonder why they have no peace that is within. There's a person, there's a a proper life that we have to live in order to have this. But joy that is experienced and interpreted in terms of itself is disappointing, like one man said. If joy is based or interpreted in terms of Christ in us, then it fills us with real and lasting satisfaction. Now, I want to talk to you about the difference between the joy of serving the Lord and the joy of serving Satan. Oh, wait a minute. You might say, well, I don't even know a devil worshiper. You know, that's what we kind of look at when we say serving Satan. We talk about those folks that dress in black, have much ugliness in their life, and do ugly things and mean things and sacrifice animals and all that. But did you know that if you are not a servant of Christ, if you are not serving the Lord, there's one or the other. If you're not the servant of the Lord, you're the servant of Satan. The devil is the prince and power of the world. He is running things, as it were. The temptations and the pleasures of life in this world that are pulling people aside, it is from the devil and not the Lord. We're either serving the Lord or we are serving the devil. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, you remember we find there that there are heroes that are described. We call this Faith's Hall of Fame sometimes, or the Roll Call of Faith. All these great men that lived in such a way, now they're a great cloud of witnesses, but they lived in such a way that they're looked upon now as an example, an example of faith. I want you to notice very briefly what one of these men that lived, that lived his life as an example of how he ought to live. This is what is said about this man by the choices that he made. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, beginning now in verse 24, notice. 
By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, all of the blessings in, in life here. Oh, all of the favor, all of the enjoyment, all of the things of the palace were at his disposal. But he made a choice. Do you know anybody that would make that kind of choice? Notice what he did. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It's true that sin is pleasurable. Listen, if sin was not pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. If sin wasn't something that was attractive, we would have nothing to do with it. If the devil was really someone that appears before man like the movies show to scare you out of your wits, some, something that's horrifying and all of that, you would run from the devil. But that's not what he does. He dangles the carrots of pleasure before us. Oh yes, make no mistake, there's a pleasure in sin. And it's folly to deny it. There is. There is an allurement and there's a pleasure in sin. But notice what Moses did. He chose something else. He made a choice. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? And how was he able to do that? The next verse. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Notice. For he had re respect under the recompense of the reward. Why did he do it? How was he able to have the strength and conviction to do it? He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy what? The pleasures of sin for a season. The pleasures of sin is immediate, but it's short-lived. You know, I kind of think that's our nature. Isn't that our nature, though? You know, of all the things that we are challenged with, remember how I told you not long ago from this very place to the pulpit when I was talking about holding grudges and stuff like that? And I said, of all the problems I have, uh, that's not one of them, and that's true. Maybe that's a weakness that you struggle with, but that's not one of mine. I got a lot of them, but that's not one of them. You know what one of mine is? I struggle daily with patience. I really do. I want it now, and I need to be careful. Now, I'm not saying I want sin now. I just want it now, whatever it is, whatever I'm doing. And when I get it in my mind that I want it, I want it now. I don't want it tomorrow. I want it now. Sometimes it's different with married couples. Sometimes one of the spouses doesn't want to talk about it. I want to talk about it now. I want to talk about it right now. I want to make it go away now. Different personalities do different things. It's been hard for me to have the patience to not be like I am. But I think that's a characteristic of our society. I really do. We want gratification right now. We want satisfaction right now. We want the pleasure right now. Immediate sat satisfaction and gratification. And you know what else we want? We want the benefit without the work. That's what we want. We want the benefit. Think back when you were a, a young child. It was okay to be a child, wasn't it? And it was okay. In fact, you liked it. You preferred it because nothing was expected of you for a while. 
All of a sudden, one day you wake up and you're, I don't know, however it is old you are, 18 maybe, I don't know, and you want to be known or viewed as an adult. What I want to know is, what did you do in one day between the day before and that day that warranted or deserved respect or reputation? Nothing. You just got one day older. But what do we do? I did it too. I'm my own man now. I want you to treat me with respect. I'm no longer a kid. Yeah, you are. Chronologically speaking, maybe you're a little older. But you haven't earned anything. Isn't that true with the way that we want people to view our reputation? Oh, listen to me now. Look at me this way. This is how I am. This is, what you, this is the way I want you to view me. We want the, we want the credit without the work. It doesn't work that way. We want to have the benefit without the work. Let me illustrate it this way. Did you know that the most often used New Year's resolution, and I'm thinking of that because we're nearing the end of yet another year. And around the 1st of January, there's going to be a lot of folks. In fact, you'd be surprised the number of them. There's going to be a lot of folks that are going to make a resolution that is uh, quite perhaps the greatest one and most often used one, maybe in all the world. And that's, I'm going to lose weight. Some people make it every year. Such a good one, they just do it every year. Make it every year. But you know what we want? We want the result without the work. You might go to a trainer, and a trainer might say, well, I'll tell you what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to resistance train three to four days a week. You're going to have to do cardio four to five days a week, and you've got to stop eating that. You've got to change the way you are. You've got to change the way you eat. You've got to change the way you work out. You've got to change your lifestyle. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't say anything about that. I just said I wanted to lose weight. I didn't say I wanted to change anything. I just want to lose weight. So you know what I'll do? And I'll tell you what, business is full of people that know how we are. You know what they do? They come up with pills. Take the pill. Eat whatever you want. Do whatever you want. And man, it'll fall off. Benefit without the work. This is my favorite. Doing sit-ups is not very fun if you've never done many sit-ups. So someone somewhere came up with an idea. You can have what they call washboard abs. All you got to do, no more sit-ups, no more crunches, no more leg raisers, nothing. You don't need to do any of that. All you got to do is this. Strap this contraption on. And it's going to stimulate your stomach muscles. And you're going to burn. Man, you're going to be ripped. And you can do it while you sleep and eat chips on the couch. Does it work? No. But it's appealing to the way we are. We want it now. We want gratification now. We want the results now without the work. That's kind of how sin is. It's temporal. But listen, there is always a price. Isn't that true? There's a price for everything. Kind of like eating something. You know what they say? You know, uh, a minute on the lips, forever on the hips. 
There's a price to pay for everything. There always has been, and there always will be. The question now is, are we willing to pay the price of setting aside the joys of sin for a season so that we can be like Moses of of old that was penned a long, long time ago and be driven by the fact because of our faith we have great recompense for the reward and we want the reward, are we willing to pay the price now? Because if we are, that price is one short life. That's it. It is one short lifetime. Now, can you imagine this? If you look at it from the standpoint, sometimes people look at it from the standpoint of all the things they have to do without and all the things they have to let go and, all, and on and on and on. Look at it this way. If you cast aside the pleasures of sin for this long, one short lifetime compared to eternity, you're getting the reward. Oh, and by the way, the joy and the hope that you have, it's like a down payment in this life. It's like a little part of it by way of the hope that you're going to have for eternity. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging words to me. That's not discouraging words. That's encouraging me. That encourages me that I got one short lifetime to put up with whatever it is I got to put up with. One short lifetime to do what God has told me to do. And he's going to help me all the way doing it. The question is, though, is this. What things by way of gratification are wrong and what things by way of gratification are okay? Those of you that know me know that I like to enjoy myself. Surely I do. There's nothing in the world wrong with things that are wholesome and things that are okay. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. If you walk around with a long face on all the time, Because you're going to be a Christian, and you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be miserable and make yourself miserable and make the world look to you like you're miserable. Oh, look at the sacrifices I'm making. You know what? Jesus said, don't do that. When you fast, don't walk around with a long face. Don't do anything so that people will look to you and go, oh, he's fasting. No, wash your face, the Lord said. Put a smile on your face. I'll tell you this, many of you heard me say this from time to time, and I'll say it again. Now get me now. A religion that makes a man look sick won't cure the world. We have to take the gospel to the lost. And if our religion has made us look sick, we're not going to convert anybody to Christ. We're not going to convert one person to Christ by way of our influence So what are the things that are sinful? What are the things that are wrong? In 1 John chapter 2, beginning there in verse 15, I want to notice with you now a couple passages there. About the difference between, we want to talk about the difference between things that are okay in the flesh and things that are wrong in the flesh. That's a good question. I mean, I think that's reasonable for us to discover for a little while. 1 John chapter 2 and beginning in verse 15. John said, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not, in, is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. That doesn't mean don't enjoy your life. That doesn't mean don't have fun. 
That doesn't mean that at all. And it doesn't mean to hate the, the people that are in the world. Of course, that would go against what every teaching that Jesus ever taught. John says exactly what it is that you stay away from. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the things that are of the world. And they are contrary to the Father. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we find that there are two things. There's two things that we can test if we're doing what's right. Number one are the things that I'm trying to enjoy or the gratifications in my life, are they prohibited by God? Do they go against what God said? I heard somebody say one time, good person, just misunderstood, misunderstood the scriptures, I'm sure, wonderful person, but was trying to come up with various rules and everybody's got their own standard of morals and so on. I would imagine that people have their own standards of morals. That's probably true. But the Bible sets in motion one standard. One standard. If I had the ability or I would say, okay, this is right. This is the standard. This is the way it ought to be. Then I would, and I was allowed to do that. Then I would be able to set into motion or enforce my own set of standards. Then if Bob all of a sudden was allowed to do the very same thing, then Bob would be able to set into motion what he thought was proper and what he thought was acceptable. But the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. A man that loves the world, the Father is not in him. In other words, the sinful pleasures that go against what God has instructed. But there's another one. There's another thing. When do you know it's wrong? Number one, when it's prohibited by God. And number two, when it's condemned by the conscience. Romans 14 says something amazing there. Romans 14 was talking about liberties. And there were people back then that had a problem with eating meat. And the Apostle Paul was saying this. That the kingdom of heaven is not meat or it isn't, it, it isn't whether you eat meat or not eat meat or drink or whatever. It, those things have no bearing on the kingdom. But Paul said this. If there are people that have a conscience against it, don't do it in their presence or to their knowledge. Don't do that because it would cause them to offend or stumble. Let me put it to you this way. First of all, sin is a transgression of the law. There are specific things that the Bible teaches in God's word that we can do, and there are things that, we, that it says that we cannot do. If we don't follow that, we transgress the law and we sin. That's easy. We understand that. What about liberty? What about things that don't necessarily go against what God has instructed? Well, we are free to use those liberties in our life so long as that liberty, as I demonstrated, does not commit sin. Now, what if I thought that there was something and it really was a liberty and it was not going against law and it was not sin. And I just thought it was okay to do because it really was liberty. 
But Terry, all of a sudden, would say he had a problem with it. If I do it, he's got a conscience against it. Paul says, basically, he'd be saying to me, Frank, don't do that to make Terry stumble. What's that mean? Well, Terry has a conscience against doing that liberty. So if he looks to my example and does it because of me, I've caused him to sin. Why? Romans 14, 23, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He's damned because he doubteth, the Bible says. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Those are the two things. Those are the two things regarding choices that we must make. Regarding the sinful pleasures of this life. How do we know if something is right or wrong? We know because it's either prohibited by God, then it's wrong, or the pursuit of that is condemned by the conscience. The sinful things are transient. They are temporary because it is the gratification of carnal desires. You remember a little bit ago, I told you that we were going to discuss what kind of life is required. What kind of life is required? Don't you want the life? Don't we all want the kind of life? Something's required. I don't get to choose how I'm going to be. Because something's required. Here's the life required. I didn't come up with this. I didn't say this. So says the word of God. The Apostle Paul writing to Titus in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Notice. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's exactly what we have to do. Salvation has been offered to all man. Salvation has been brought down to mankind. It was manifested and fulfilled in the scheme of redemption with Jesus Christ on, on, on Golgotha, on the cross a long time ago. My responsibility is I have to deny ungodliness. I have to deny worldly lust. And then i got to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. The Christian is different. We are set aside, set apart. We are peculiar people. Zealous of good works. Zealous of good works. I want you to notice, these weren't just words just kind of as a guideline either. Look at the next verse. Look what Paul said. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. You know, we've studied this a number of times. I think we even brought it up on Wednesday night. This last Wednesday night, it comes up over and over. The fact that we exhort one another. The fact that we rebuke one another with the Word of God. The Word of God does that. The Word of God in our teaching and our preaching needs to include both and encouragement. But exhorting is to remind somebody of something that they already know and then encourage them to do it. Have you ever said to your kid, have you ever said to your child, you give them advice but they've heard it before 
And they say, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I, know. I, yeah, I got it. I know. I hate that. Because sometimes I just want to convey that over and over again. But that's what we do with the Word of God. Don't ever, be it this subject or any other, don't ever think for one minute, I've heard that. Yeah, 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 I got it. Listen to the words. Listen to the words and take them in. Rebuke now brings about correction. Don't turn a deaf ear to that either. The Word of God tells us how to live. I've got to deny ungodly things. I've got to deny worldly lust. I've got to live soberly. I've got to live righteously. And I've got to live godly in this present life. Just a guideline? Just an outline? No. These things Paul said, rebuking and exhorting and coming with all authority. That's the words of the Apostle Paul, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says it comes with all authority. You know, if I come up with something and tell you, there's no authority behind that. I'm not anybody. I'm just a man. I'm just a person. We're all the same. I can't come up with something that's going to all of a sudden need to be listened to, something new because I have authority. I don't have any authority. But when you say it from the Bible, it is all authoritative. That's what Paul said. So anybody that would say that's not true is going against the authority of the Apostle Paul, divinely inspired and chosen to write these things for you and I living thousands of years later. Kind of sheds different light on it when folks would want to say that these things are not required. Our joy is based, though, on our hope. And with hope, here's a word now, we can't sidestep this word. We need this word. This is probably one of the hardest things for us to do. And you know why? The reason it's difficult for us to do what I'm about to tell you is because people have let us down in our life. People have done things that weren't right to us. People have let us down. People have committed to us. People have promised us things. People have lied to us. So it's hard to do this next thing right here. But I'm going to tell you this. You can't have joy regarding hope without this little tiny word. And that word is trust. That word is trust. There are people that I have, that I have in my life some are family, some are not family, but you know, I'll tell you, I would trust them with everything that I have. I would trust them with my family. I would trust them with my children. I would trust them with every dime that I have, whatever that is. I would trust them with whatever I have. You know why people don't trust? Two reasons. People don't trust for two reasons. Number one, they don't trust because others have let them down and they're hurt. And I'm not telling you to go trust your neighbor necessarily right now. I'm talking about a different kind of trust. But you know, there's a second reason why that we don't trust. 
First reason is because others have let us down and, not, and, and didn't do what they said they would do. But the second reason is we have let somebody else down. And we know that too. So we don't trust. We have to have trust to have the hope that the Bible speaks of. Do you remember last Lord's Day in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? I want you to notice just a couple of things from last Sunday morning. In verse number 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul said, But the Lord is faithful. What he's talking about is, he's talking about, that word faithful means trusty. It means you can trust him. It means you can hang your hat on it as it were. You can count on it. The Lord is trusty. He is faithful. What's he going to do? Oh, I just can't do it. You remember last week we talked about the fact that sometimes we're weak? Yes, we are sometimes weak. And sometimes we fall down. And we have compassion for those that are weak and fall down. And it's our responsibility when they fall down to reach down and pick them up and take them right along with us. And don't ever let them be cast aside when they're weak. That's all true. And isn't it encouraging to talk about that very thing? That if you are weak, then a brother or sister in Christ is there to lift you up. Isn't that great? I'm talking about something greater. I'm talking about something that's greater than that. Isn't it great when somebody picks up the phone, calls you on the phone, and encourages you? Oh, listen. Listen to me. I believe in all that encouragement stuff. I do. Trying to help people, inspire people. I, I believe in all that. But you know what he says here? He said, the Lord is faithful. What's the Lord going to do? Not me now. What's the Lord going to do? He's going to establish you. That word means strengthen. That's greater than anything I can ever say. The Lord is faithful. You can trust him. He's going to strengthen you. You're going to make it if you will. You're going to make it if you will. He's going to also keep you from evil. You know, in James 4 and 7, the Bible says, Submit yourself, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is a promise. If you have temptations in your life, these things, these sinful things are temporary. But I'll tell you this, if you submit yourself, therefore, unto God, if you resist the devil, the devil's going to flee. And one more thing, and I love this verse, we say it all the time, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul said, There is no temptation taken you that is such as common to man. You know what that means, Frank, when you're feeling sorry for yourself, Frank? Somebody else has gone through exactly what you've gone through, or worse. Or worse. We're not alone in this life. The Christian life is not gloomy. It is not depressing. And it is not artificial. It makes life happy in spite of the conditions that are around us. You remember in the introduction we talked about things that make us happy? These are conditions around us. Things. Circumstances. i got to admit something to you. I don't know why. This last week I wasn't very happy. Really couldn't put my finger on it though. I just kind of rotten. I just kind of felt like that. Irritable. 
I don't know why. Happens. But you got to get a hold of yourself. And you got to bring yourself back to what you know you ought to be thinking about. Usually it's because you're thinking about things that you shouldn't or your heart's in a certain position that it shouldn't be or whatever it is. A doctor said, psychologically speaking, joy is the index to health resulting from adequate engagement of affections, vigorous and harmonious exercise of powers. I love this, get this. It is a sure sign that the soul has found its object. <laughs> Maybe we're miserable because the soul has not found its object. Maybe. Maybe it's because we haven't found our object. Maybe it's because we think about the things we shouldn't think about. But did you know that having miserable looks on faces over time, because all that is is an outward show of something else that's in here, it affects your health. Joe Heisel preaches a sermon on being happy. And that people that are happy live longer. Generally speaking, happy people gen, uh, generally live longer. It can shorten your life. Have you ever stopped to consider that every single thing that the Bible teaches us that's a command also benefits us physically in this life? Like obeying your parents. It may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. There's things that even make sense in the flesh, not just because God said so, but He said so, but it even helps us every single day. When we're little, we don't think our parents know anything. Oh, they do. If we live, if we listen to them, if we go by the things that they tell us to do, it's going to be well with us. And it's also in keeping what the Word of God says. Really quick now, and our time is, is getting away from us, but there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. Touching on a little bit of something that we spoke of last Lord's Day, but I had so many people comment on this passage of how encouraging this passage was. I'm going to tie a couple things in. Just give me a couple of minutes. I'm going to tie a couple things in. Because I'm going to tell you this. If you wake up tomorrow and you're having a hard time, you read Philippians 4. If you're a Christian and you're struggling, you pick up your Bible and you read Philippians chapter 4. What did Paul say? Now let me just tell you what Paul was going through. He had brethren that were not getting along. He had people that wanted to get him. He was even facing what he knew was going to be a trial that would end possibly in his own execution. If this brother didn't have an opportunity, listen, if there was anybody in all the world that had an opportunity or an occasion to feel sorry for himself or get down, it'd be Paul. But what did he say? Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Back to that in a minute at the very end of our sermon on a command. Okay? That's what he said first. Oh, great. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that, Paul? Paul begins to speak of those things. Verse 6, he talks about not being anxious, but pray about everything. He tells you the proper way to pray. 
And then he says, when you pray properly, you're going to have the peace of God which passeth all understanding and shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Then he gives us something to do. Don't we need something to do? I need something to do. We always get in trouble and we always start thinking wrong when we don't do anything. My grandfather that you don't know, Frank Brancato, the man I was, I was named after, used to always say, that an idle, idle hands are tools for the devil and an idle mind is his workshop. That's the worst thing you could ever do is to have an idle mind. If you got too much time on your hands, that's usually when you get into mischief. Guilty as charged. Happens to all of us. So Paul said, here's a list of things to think about. Not only think, but this word think means meditate. You erase all that thinking that you have that's not right, and you start doing this. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think or meditate on these things. But then there's one more thing. Then, all the things, Paul said, that you've seen in me or heard from me, do it. He said, you want to make it? You want to make it? You want to make living the Christian life? You want to hang in there? Pray right. Think right and do right. I don't know. I have a lot of people say to me that I just don't know how to do it. Yes, you do. That's it right there. Pray right. Think right. And do right. How do we know what's right? Paul said, the things that you've seen in me and here, the things that are in this book, would fall into that category of what to do that's right. But there was one verse that I forgot last time. It just got by me and I just hated that. But verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. If you pray right, think right, do right, regardless of your circumstances, you will be content. You'll have peace in your soul. You may be hurting, and it's, that's okay. You may have things, and that's okay, but you're going to have contentment in your life. When one is right in the sight of God, he cannot help but to be happy. The question is, what does one get when he's right in the sight of God? What do you get? You know, we talked about we got to think about the right things, all that. Well, what do you get? Talk about joy, hope, trust. What do you get if you do it? I know what I get if I go after the pleasures of sin for a season. I'm going to have pleasure right now. What do I get if I take the pleasures of sin for a season and push it out of the way and say, no, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to live godly, soberly, righteously, and I'm going to do it right now. What do I have? This is what you have. Number one, I do think we got to tell people what they get. Don't you? When you want to talk to somebody about being a Christian, you got to tell them what they get. Number one, you get enjoyment of divine favor, Titus 3. Number two, you got possession of divine peace, John 4. You have the privileges of adoption, Galatians 5. And get this, 
You got the possession of precious promises, Matthew 5. A promise is something that you don't have. In other words, when we have a promise of eternal life, we don't have eternal life yet. We have not taken possession of it yet. But there's something that we have right here. And that is possession of the promise of it. You think of one thing in your life that you were going through that was hard. One thing. And you didn't see an end in sight. It made it worse, didn't it? What if somebody said, okay, it's over in this short time. You look to the hope and it gets you through. You look past it because it's only this long and it gets you through. If you're a child of God, you don't have the promise yet. What is the promise? You don't have eternal life yet. You don't have eternal bliss in heaven. You don't have the reward yet. But what do you have? You have in your possession the promise of it. And you've got to trust God. You've got to trust Him. He's faithful. If you'll keep His conditions... You'll have his promise. In, in conclusion, joy, as I mentioned before, is a command. There's nothing in all the Bible that's commanded that's easy. Things might be easier for you, and other things might be easier for me of various commandments in the Bible. I don't know. But nothing commanded is easy or else it wouldn't be stressed as a command. It'd be easy to do. It would be our very nature. When we have a command to do something, it's because it goes against our nature and we're told, do it. Do it anyway. Put yourself aside. Jesus says, you humble yourself and you'll be exalted. It's a command. It's like love. It's a command. You know what love is? It's a choice and an exercise of the mind. So is joy. It's a choice and an exercise of the mind. Regardless of how I feel inside, I'm to rejoice evermore. It's a command. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul said rejoice evermore. Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul said rejoice in the Lord always. How many times do you read in the Bible... I think I can think of two right off the top of my head where Paul, as the writer, repeated himself, but not very often. Galatians 1 is one of them. But what does he say here? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. My dear friends today, that in prosperity or adversity, in health or sickness, among friends or behind bars... We should be exceedingly happy and thankful for so many privileges and blessings. There can be troubles all around us, in the home, the church, the community, wherever it is. But if we have the joy that the Bible commands us to have, those troubles will not make us murmur. They will not allow us to dwell in self-pity. We will not possess a martyr complex. We will not. As we joy in the Lord. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information 
or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.